0: Uh, And I wouldn't say that I've necessarily have it figured out. I mean, there are gurus who make their entire career doing that, but I have figured some things out for me. I mean, certainly I went from being an overwhelmingly busy executive with no time to do anything to finding time to write a book. I mean, that's like, I still am amazed that I was able to figure it out. But the way that I did that was I looked at my life and I, I knew that this was something that I needed to do. I knew for a fact it wasn't going to be something that happens just
1: Today is our second half of our interview with Ted Harrington. Um, Ted, for anybody who missed the first part, will you tell them just a little bit of background on your business and on the new book coming out?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm a leader of Ethical Hackers. We're the the good guys who do bad guy stuff, and we help companies who are building things, help them understand how they might get attacked, and uh, help them fix it. I wrote a book called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, specifically to help companies solve this. I mean, it's literally every page is what I advise to our customers. And that's, that's why I'm here. That's why I wrote this book. My mission is to try to spread those ideas and, and help everybody do security better. That's great. So
1: in part one of the interview, we talked a lot about securities issues. I'm really interested in your thoughts and discoveries of growing a security business. You know, one of the things I'm interested in right off the bat is, you know, you've been getting on podcasts lately, you've written this book, seems like that's got to be a great credibility builder, potential lead generation source. What, what were some of your thoughts behind this, you know, this PR stuff you've been doing in the book writing?
0: Well, I wrote the book for a number of reasons. Some of them are just, you know, so intensely personal that it's like, I just, I knew I've always needed to, to do something this big. I have these, essentially there's four principles that define my life, right? One is uh, do hard things. The second is do things that matter, do things in the service of others. And then the fourth is get better every day. And when you look at writing a book, that's what writing a book is, all four of those. And that's what security is too. That's why over the course of my career, how I found that those are my four principles was that each stage of my career, I was doing something and realized something's missing here. And then when I moved to whatever the next stage was, I realized, aha, now that's peeling back another layer to the onion. And so fast forward to today, now I'm finally writing this book that I've known I've wanted to write for a while. And there's so many things that I'll benefit from personally. I mean, no doubt, like, of course, being an author comes with all kinds of good stuff, better speaking engagements and higher speaking fees and, uh, you know, better credibility for our company. But the thing that's really most fulfilling to me is to know that I'm going to be able to help more people now. Uh, everyone who picks up this book i didn't leave anything out like it's in there you will solve your problems if you read this thing and that to me feels really good and that's if you're not wanting to do that if you don't have the desire to actually help people if you're if it's totally self-serving you won't be able to invest the two years it takes to write a book
1: you know i am i'm I'm several months into writing my first book and uh so it's one of the reasons i was interested is I'm such an audiobook nerd. I mean, our listeners know if you if you count the Jason Bourne genre books, <laughs> it's probably like eleven hundred books in the last you know decade or dozen years, right? And some of those I've listened to ten and twenty times like I really you know i'm I'm like a three to four book books a week kind of guy, right. Wow. And they've just changed my life. And, you know, I've gone, I've taken classes at Harvard and Stanford and, and I consider myself kind of a lifelong learner, but those books are just amazing. It's, it's incredible how much you can get from somebody's whole life experience for 10 bucks on an audible credit. Right. So For me, I think like, so mine, what I've been working on, and I always question like, is this the right for is this the right first book (laughs) is like the working titles like Warren Buffett, Special Ops and Commercial Real Estate Investing. And it's kind of about how Warren Buffett says the number one thing that you need as an investor is emotional control. And so I just go through like some of his most basic principles, and how like some top people like Bruce Flatt from Brookfield have applied those principles to their like $500 billion of real assets, you know, real estate and renewable energy and stuff. And and just like, okay, if I'm making decisions, how can I use those same principles, whether I'm buying a duplex or buying buying shares of Brookfield, right? And then it's a whole bunch of like stories of special ops guys and emotional control in like really intense situations. And for investors, there's just so much peer pressure of like everybody else is making money, I've lost out, and then they get in at the, they get in at the top, right? But it's just like they just can't take the pressure that everyone's making getting rich except them, you know? And then like the sky is falling, <laughs> the sky is falling, and I think like I just gotta get anything out of this, right. you know, everyone's too depressed, right? So stuff like this. But but to me, like I guess I resonate with what you're saying a bit because I think even if the book doesn't bring us any more investors to Greystoke investments, like I do have this like personal like vendetta about I got sold this idea that startups and, and things that Warren Buffett would call speculating is investing. And, you know, unfortunately made and lost tons of money as a result because you get the kind of results that gamblers get. Right. right. And so this last 10 years where I like lost my religion in speculating and, and became like a total Warren Buffett nerd. It's just like, it's interesting. Like the idea is so simple. He, he describes his investing method as a simple way of investing his partner, Charlie Munger says it only takes two weeks to learn how to invest like Warren Buffett. It's just business schools wouldn't have anything else to teach for the other four years, you know? And so like, I have this like soapbox about like the finance industry uses big, long words to try and confuse you and make you feel them so that you'll have to pay their fees <laughs> to handle your money. right? And, and that like, anyways, my, my whole point with this is I I'm interested for many of the same reasons that you are, you know, obviously in a different realm, but, but I'm also fascinated with people's thought processes about it and, and even like the marketing of this book so far, you know, you've been on podcasts, you're on this one.
0: What what other things are you doing? Well, first I would, your title's awesome. I mean, the concept of your book is awesome, but I think what you should do, you just, your title, it sounds like should be m- emotional control. It should be something like emotional control, applying the principles of special operations to help finance investors achieve explosive results, something like that. Okay, <clears throat> I pick that book up, and I'm, <laughs> I'm like not as much the investor as you are in real estate. The things that I'm doing to, I guess, get the word out, like how we're we're marketing, is uh, well, I mean, writing a book, of course, in itself is that, but um, yeah, certainly podcasts. I speak a lot. Uh, before everything shut down due to COVID, I was you know going flying all over the place for speaking engagements, and those then sort of shifted to virtual talks, and they'll eventually shift back to live events. That's always a really good way to sort of get out and evangelize, and especially when most speakers are pretty pretty bad. A decent speaker, you really stand out, and then that's how you get into the really keynote game, which is which is quite different. So I spent a lot of uh, time and energy retooling in order to you know excel as a keynote speaker and that was sort of just starting to take off as uh, as covid hit and so that'll it's just on pause for a moment but yeah I mean producing content is definitely the big thing i I mentioned earlier about research that we've done and so I think that's that's what people want right they want to be they want to be consuming content and that's how they find people that they want to do business with I mean that's how i ultimately found the publisher that I'm working with is I read a book that my publisher wrote about writing nonfiction books. And as I'm reading, I'm like, yes, this, this is what I want to who, who do. Did, who did you choose by the way? What's that? Who did you choose? It's called Lioncrest publisher. Publishing and uh, they're okay. based, they're based out of Austin. They're, they're really great. They, one of their famous books that it's called, I think it's called, you can't hurt me. I forget now, but it was, it was a memoir. And it would have been oh, the top-telling memoir one? of all time, but it came out the same year as Michelle Obama's.
1: <laughs> that That's a David Goggins one, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Is it like with Tucker Max and Scribe Book School?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Is that the same one? Yeah.
1: Yeah, we, we had him on in the spring. He was great. Yeah, he's awesome, um, isn't he? I, he's, he's a fireball. I, he's a polarizing guy, but I like him. So <laughs> I'm interested in this what this process looks like because there's a lot of people who can feel like, oh, speaking, writing books, that's a lot of time. I should just go do more sales calls. or how you know that seems like you know making content or doing original research like i love joe paluzzi the guy that started the content marketing institute my favorite book of his is killing marketing but had him on the podcast and he talked about like original research was their number one lead generation source he did in 10 over 10 years you know and yet it can feel like such a gamble of like well how do we know we have enough time for that like when you think about the roi of like what activity you're going to do You know, every time that you're spending time perfecting your speaking skills, you're not doing something else at the business. What does that decision
0: process look like for you? That's a great question. Uh, And I wouldn't say that I've necessarily have it figured out. I mean, there are gurus who make their entire career doing that, but I have figured some things out for me. I mean, certainly I went from being an overwhelmingly busy executive with no time to do anything to finding time to write a book. I mean, that's like, I still am amazed that I was able to figure it out, but the way that I did that was I looked at my life and I I knew that this was something that I needed to do. I knew for a fact it wasn't going to be something that happens just when you slide it in with everything else. I knew I needed to change my life. And so I started studying about I don't I don't know what the exact term would be. It's not quite productivity, but about I started studying about how to do work that matters. And I wound up of all the books that I read, there were three in particular that really did, did change my life. One's called Make Time, one's called The One Thing, and one's called Deep Work. And each of those books, they advocate – there's are sort of three circles of a Venn diagram that overlap, but they essentially teach you how to get rid of the noise and to compartmentalize and to prioritize the thing that's going to make the most meaningful difference in your life. And I implemented those ideas And as a result, I was able to find time to write a book. So that's one thing that I've been I don't even know those the the authors of those three books. I mean, I've connected with them on LinkedIn now, but I'm I'm like their greatest salesman. I'm just out there pitching their books all the time because they helped me change my life and and I know that they can help others too.
1: Well, so Deep Work is Cal Newport. Such a fan. I like had to start because of that book. I started doing these like turn my cell phone actually off, like physically off for my time blocking of stuff, right? And like gary keller with the one thing i am i listen to a little bit of that book every week like ryan holiday's book uh the obstacles away i listen to a little bit of that every day because like every time i get overwhelmed with something i just flip that book on it helps me get my game face back on but so you gotta check out that one but the one thing like i'm like mr like shiny penny syndrome like i'm like that dog off of up where it's like squirrel you know what i mean right and like i read that book like when I know that I am becoming less effective because I'm spreading myself too thin or doing too many things at once and none of them are working right I like have to flip that book on which means I have to flip that book on a lot <laughs> like especially chapter four about the eighty twenty principle you know and like don't let the, the things that matter most be at the mercy of things that matter less right but but tell me about this first book because if you like those two I really want to know what the third book is what was the first one you said Make time. Okay. So make time is by the
0: guys who invented Instagram or I don't know if they were, they invented it actually, but they were on the design team and the whole premise of Instagram is a never, they call these infinity pools. It's you, you'll never run out of content. And, of course, they wrote this book now almost as a, like, my bad <laughs> because they're such, you know, bad time sinks. And the book's structured where it's – I want to say it's, like, 87 ideas or something. So it's these, like, little bite-sized chunks, and they essentially teach you how to, like, block time together, reduce switching costs, stuff like that. And it's I, – I really like that book. I thought it was great. Okay. I'm going to go buy that one. Yeah. I'd pick it up for um, sure.
1: So I'm interested in your experience, so like i I'm like a people guy, right I love yapping, obviously I did this show just so I could meet people I wish I knew right and I like conferences like I love getting exposed to new ideas and I like meeting interesting people right so I'm interested what you like are you mostly speaking at conferences and then seeing what comes in through the website are you actively networking after and grabbing cards what's what's like, what's your process look like as far as you know? For instance, speaking at a conference being the maximum benefit for the business.
0: Yeah, I think that speaking at a conference is is such a powerful way to to generate leads for sure. And, and the beauty is, as long as you go in with the right attitude, which is that I am here to try to help people, and you start with that, and then it's all upside after that. Because if you go in trying to make it the sales pitch, it's going to mm. totally fail. I'm a car our, slimy. Yeah, exactly. No one, no one wants to sit through that. So my method is that I typically don't really spend a lot of time at the conference before my session. If the if the meeting planner wants me to or they want me to come, you know, join a meet and greet or what I'm more than happy to do any of that stuff. But unless it's something they specifically want, I, I typically don't. Uh because you're just another patron at that point. And so your the level of investment of effort you have to make to network when you're just another attendee is it's hard. After though is a totally different ball game because now you've been on the stage, you've shared some ideas and the people those ideas resonate with, they're going to come find you and now you're going to have some really fun and productive conversations. Even if it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I probably leave every conference with, I don't know, I mean it ranges, but like dozens and dozens of business cards and then of those, you know, maybe only a couple of them are something viable, but I'm still, I mean just today actually, it's kind of funny that you asked this question. Literally today, we received a signed contract from a talk that I gave. I was the keynote speaker to a medical device conference a year ago January, so like 18 or 20 months ago, and it led to a deal that we just signed today. So I mean it's it takes sometimes a long tail, but it does materially produce results.
1: Yeah. Shifting gears maybe just a little. Thinking about, you know, being specialized experts like you guys are. How do you think through your mix of how much marketing versus how much sales team Outbound, inbound, some of those type of dynamics for growing your in your specific sector.
0: So I'd say that we are pretty light on the sales and marketing side. Actually, we don't even have a single person in our company who would be designated as dedicated to marketing. And then of the salespeople, maybe Salesforce makes up like fifteen percent of the company. And so really, the, the like fifty to seventy percent of the company is the our our analysts. And then, of course, there's account managers and project managers and stuff like that. And what has really driven our success, we made a, a decision several years ago when we were looking at different growth strategies. And the strategy that we went after heavy was our whole mission and our value promise is that we're going to do the a qu- work at a level of quality that no one hiring this type of service has seen before. And in order to do that, Well, not in order to do that, but in process of doing that, our sales mission is let's be so good that they don't leave, that they renew, and that they grow, and they refer us to others. And that strategy has definitely worked. That's what's driven our growth has been retention and expansion. As far as I think the struggle that pretty much any company has, how do you make outbound efforts in order to uh, find new customers, I mean, that's just a small part of actually how we grow, yet it's disproportionate the amount of effort that goes into it for the returns that it gets. But of course, you have to have it. So really, our growth has been just do a good job and make it so that people can't do anything other than work with us.
1: So, you know, I don't know that we've ever, you know, 450 episodes of the show here. I don't know if you've ever had anybody who would claim that they're not doing a good job, right? But what it sounds like you're saying is like there's this maybe like a personal pride, like an active like we are going to exceed expectations type of attitude.
0: Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Our whole mantra is to to be better. You know, be, be better today than we were yesterday, and we're going to be better tomorrow than we are today. And if we do those things right, if we make ourselves better and we make our peers better and we make the company better, if we do those things first, we'll be able to make the customer better. And if the customer's better then we've done our job and, and about how many people on your team the company is about today around 50 people okay so
1: when you think about an idea like that and having it not just be like some poster on the wall what does that look like week to week to like help this be like you know people have it in the bones who work here like what does that reinforcement looks like What does the repetitions keeping that alive look like for you guys
0: One is verbal. People who work for me are probably sick of, (laughs) that's like every seventh word out of my mouth is the word better. But in terms of, you know, you can't really scale, like how often does someone hear Ted say a word? You know, that's, that's not a practical strategy for growing the company. So what we do is we've built in different, different structures. So one is we have a war an award that we give out every quarter. That's called the IC stands for the ISE center of excellence. Our, Our company's called ISE. So the ISE center of excellence And we award it to an individual who has demonstrated ways that they've gone above and beyond, that they've been better, they've made the company or the customer better. And we essentially have our, you know, our core, our four core values. And so whenever we award this, we hand this award out, it's always associated with one of them. So like one of our core values is education. And so we might be saying something like, okay, well, you know, Shay, you win this, this quarter for education because of, and then we talk about all the things that this individual did that reflect that value. And over enough repetition of that where you're positively reinforcing, we're literally giving an award and saying, this is for one of the core values. It starts to sink in with people. And you know that it's starting to sink in when people make jokes about it. For example, okay. if if we'll say, okay, you know, Jim, you 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 choose lunch today and Jim chooses some lunch that other people don't like, rather than being you know jerks about it, they'll say something like, Jim, one of our core values is quality. Is this sandwich quality?
1: <laughs> That's funny.
0: Well, listen, I really enjoyed our chat here today.
1: What's when you think about business success, the rest of us who are trying to get ahead, what's maybe something we didn't cover that that, that you'd maybe share with the rest of us that you feel like has worked in your career?
0: Well, I, I certainly don't have all the answers, and uh, when when you said in 450 episodes no one has said that they're not doing a good job, I could probably tell you 15 things that we're not doing a good enough job on. So <laughs> I guess that my – maybe my last leave everybody with this thought would just be it's, it's okay. Like we're – I think every single one of us who are in – already in a leadership position or are striving to be in a leadership position – we probably all suffer from imposter syndrome, and we're probably looking at you know a, a podcast series of 450 episodes of all these people absolutely crushing life, and we're like, man, I don't know if I'm as good as that person. And I guess my, my point would be I feel that way, and I know that probably every single guest you've had feels that way and if you feel that way that's how you know you're doing the right thing that's how you know you are going to succeed because if you if you truly felt that you were already as good as you'd ever be you're done you're at the end of your growth path and so it's okay to have that discomfort i live with it every day and it's what drives me to get better and i and i think that will be for everyone else that's listening to this
1: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up i, I have this great advisor she her her firm havener capital in rhode island has is raised like $8 billion for other investment funds that's led to an additional like 30 billion, a follow on dollars. Right. And, and she was giving me some advice about what we're doing and how we should do it. Right. And part of it was like a bit of a big pill to swallow about like me being like having some radical self-honesty about some of the, like some of my background, some of the stuff we're doing. Right. And, and as you're saying that I keep thinking about this and I think about, there's a couple of Epictetus quotes, the stoic philosopher guy that really stuck out to me this year Ryan holiday, the obstacle is the way guy, he's got this app called the daily stoic where, you know, these things pop up every day. Right. I think they're both by Epictetus, but one said, if you want to be, I'm going to murder the quotes here, but basically like, if you want to be really good at something first, believe you're bad at it. And I thought, you know, that's like, so like the Bruce Lee stuff or whatever, but like in the master's mind, there are a few options in the beginner's mind, in the beginner's mind, there are many options. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've raised like tens of millions of dollars for, for investments. And so if I focus on what I have done, I can like sit on my, you know, sit on my laurels and, and think I'm a big deal or something. Right. Where if I think instead of like, what about the people who've raised billions, billions like Stacy, right? right. She, We actually have a great interview of her. She was on the show, but, and like, depending on which one of those I want to spend time focusing on will be like, which, like, it's going to be highly motivating on how hard I think I need to work at my fundraising game or not. Do you know what I mean? Right. right? and like there's another epictetus quote i saw last night about if you want to get good at something be okay with looking foolish in the meantime you know and like think about iterations and like the vulnerability to be willing to fail and like you know if i'm too busy protecting my reputation or something like that it's going to be a major hindrance
0: to me getting better at something right right yeah and that's like it's it's hard right if you're if if we see other people succeed and we don't see that vulnerability cuz most people don't reveal that vulnerability we're being reinforced that it's either you got it or you don't. And so when those people that we're seeing succeed are probably just as much being like, well, I'm no Richard Branson, you know, and <laughs> even Richard Branson yeah, yeah. probably compares himself to someone else.
1: Yeah. They built it brick by brick too. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Everybody go check out hackablebook.com. Ted, thanks for making time for this interview. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Me too. Great. Bye everyone.